0: Warning, this podcast has stories of real-life events and true crime that happens every day. These stories may contain adult language and graphic or disturbing details not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In our society, most people are content to go through their daily lives safely and peacefully, but our society is not always safe or peaceful. For that reason... Some men and women answer a higher calling to defend and protect their fellow man. You probably know someone who is one of these people. Or maybe you are one of these people. The ones who see and do the things most people would never want to. These things are sometimes heroic and beautiful, but often they are horrific and terrifying. It's these things they don't share about with other people. It's these things they carry with them, so you don't have to. But when they get together... They talk to each other about them, and they call these stories War Stories. Welcome to another episode of War Stories. I'm Tom. And I'm Chuck. And this week, we're going to have sort of a... It's not an email show, but it's... We have a guest, but it's also a show about an email.
1: (laughs) So it's a... Right, she's a registered registered nurse through the pandemic and wrote her decided to write her thoughts down regarding everything.
0: Right. So uh, we got this email and we read it and we were going to read it on the air, but then Chuck reached out to this gal and uh, are we, uh, are we calling her by the name that she sent the email from?
1: Uh, No, we, we went over um, her name last night. Um, so right now we'll just call her the nurse. Um.
0: So that we can, uh, I can verify. Give me a second. She, okay. So here's the email and we thought we'd read it before we have her on uh, just for the sake of uh, time here uh, it's called, they called us heroes. I worked for years to become a nurse through many trials, tests, and tears. I clawed my way out of nursing school into a profession of which I was proud to be a part of a dream became a reality. There was a certain pride that occurred every time I wrote RN after my name Every day as I spoke to doctors and healthcare employees, I felt a sense of belonging and respect, not only for my profession, but for myself. I loved being a nurse. I loved how hard I had worked to earn my degree and the difference I was making in the lives of my patients. Then COVID-19 became a rampant across the country. I was scared, and as every other nurse in America now knows, the fear of facing the unknown while taking guidance from those who know nothing does not result in positive patient care. I did not understand the gravity of this statement. And now I understand I must share my thoughts with you. So you may not only see my perspective, but also consider your own. The first few weeks were chaos. There were no guidelines and it felt as if everything I knew was null and void. The rules of infection control, which were written in stone and tattooed in the hearts of every nurse were shattered. It was a medical psychiatric unit equipped with two negative pressure rooms and flooded overnight with 10 patients who all had the sniffles or a low-grade fever. Psychiatric patients do not know about infection control. Psychiatric patients do not care about your isolation precautions. So I watched as the doors on the patient's rooms had their locks changed, and we were instructed to lock the door if the patient did not comply with isolation precautions. A locking mechanism that could be opened from the outside with a key, but not the inside. This medical restraint, which is technically legal with the proper documentation and a doctor's order, Seemed inappropriate and excessive because mental illness does not always coincide with logical thinking, preventing many patients from understanding these new COVID-19 rules, let alone being able to abide by them. And as I questioned this practice to my coworkers and my manager, I was told, this is what is best for everyone. It doesn't seem to be best for the patients, I thought. When they told us to reuse our N95 masks because there wasn't enough to supply all the healthcare workers, I questioned the efficacy of an infection control policy that doesn't consider the biological definition of an airborne virus. This is what we have to do, I was told. It doesn't make sense to do this, I thought. When the patients entered the anterooms where the staff donned their personal protective equipment, which was connected directly to the patient's room, instead of staying in their locked rooms as instructed, the rooms were considered contaminated and administration opted out of using them. Take your PPE off inside the room and then step into the hall, they instructed. I thought to myself, you won't have nurses to take care of the ill if they are ill themselves. Then for three months, I watched as not a single administrator making these regulations stepped foot on our COVID unit. They didn't care because they aren't us, I thought. After watching stories on the news of overworked understaffed nurses fighting for the lives of their patients, I thought of how proud I was to be a part of this profession. They called us heroes. They called us essential. I'm helping, I thought. My moral conscience thought otherwise. A constant reminder of the confusing policies in the unchecked system creating an environment where anything was something if it got the hospital by. Just make them sign another educational understanding sheet, then they will know the policies. I was confused. We were instructed to limit our interaction with our patients to once per shift to accommodate the low personal protective equipment. We were informed doctors' visits were to be conducted via Zoom calls to protect the providers, but who's going to protect the nurses, I thought. I watched as the care became more impersonal with each passing day. Healthcare technicians refused to step foot in isolation rooms. Family visits were banned outright. I watched the patient morale decrease and the patient depression rate increase as days turned into weeks when they were kept in isolation because they still tested positive. This policy would not change until several months later, subjecting many patients to unnecessary confinement. There's nothing we can do right now, I was told, and my heart was breaking, I thought. I worked for 18 months in uncertain circumstances. Didn't we all? Were patients, uh, where patients testing positive with an inborn uh, airborne illness were not placed in a negative pressure room because they were simply wasn't enough of them? I watched as surgical masks took over our country. They don't protect from something that's airborne, I thought. I watched as a virus was explained to be essentially droplet-based transmission. That's not what they told us last week, I thought. I waited to get sick after being exposed to positive patients prior to knowing their health status. And as I reused old contaminated PPE and wore surgical masks for 12 hours straight, I haven't gotten sick yet, I thought. They created a vaccine. There was hope for healthcare everywhere. Hope for our patients, our parents, our families. I encourage family and friends to get it. I support vaccines, I thought. And I reflected on my time working with COVID-19 patients. How I had not gotten sick after room 213 coughed in my face. How had I not gotten sick after reusing my face masks for three days straight? How can I trust medical professions that have been changing their minds about a virus since the day it was introduced, I thought. My decision to not get vaccinated was made after I was informed. After I witnessed the virus firsthand and after I sacrificed my own safety for the care of my patients, then I was targeted. How can you not get the vaccine? How can you not trust the science? How can you contribute to this huge problem at hand? My mother, my family, my friends, and my coworkers harshly berating anyone who opposed their viewpoint. The news was pushing it. The president was pushing it. I watched as my coworker, who had originally been against receiving the vaccine for scientifically based reasons, such as natural immunity, lined up one by one to maintain their job security. My voice was not heard when they locked those patient doors, and my voice was not being heard now. As the mandates began, I thought back to to my origin, back to the days of nursing school, back to the principles of the nursing profession. What do I stand for, I thought. What does it mean to be a nurse in 2021? As I found out, the mandates began when the threat to withdraw government assistance programs from hospital funding was announced. I thought of how shameful it was to hold your heroes for ransom in order to get what you want. I reassured myself that as a healthcare provider, the mandates were necessary to protect the vulnerable. And then the vulnerable became dispensable. The vulnerable became the middle class. The vulnerable became the entirety of America. I watched as the values I held as a nurse were disregarded. I watched as the informed consent, which was a staple of my profession, was ripped up and burned. I watched as the right to, uh, the right to refuse turned into the right to starve to death. If you did not get vaccinated, I watched as the years I spent advocating for my patients turned into a memory as nurses across the country had their right to advocate for themselves banned. I watched my patients suffer as the healthcare system discarded those who did not comply. Short staffing became normal staffing. Long hours became regular shifts. Integrity so fragile since the beginning seemed to fade into the background as the worldwide pandemic decided it did not need nurses anymore. The care nurses provide wasn't in the best interest of the financial entities that controlled healthcare from behind the scenes. The rule of this game was made only to benefit those who had never cared for a person during COVID-19. The rules for nurses were determined by a price tag, and the value of human connection was forgotten, and the value of the pharmaceutical companies became immeasurable. So I am leaving nursing. I cannot stand in a profession that values money over patient safety and compliance over quality care. I cannot lower my standards of love nor ignore the principles that are the foundations of this profession, the right to inform consent and the right to refuse the right to advocate and the duty to do so. I cannot work in a profession that does not care about what it means to be human, what it means to be kind and what it means to care for others. It cannot be forced to tell patients they should go through with a medical procedure simply because I will lose my job. If I do not, I cannot be a nurse anymore because this is not nursing. Now, uh, that's a pretty long and well thought out email that uh, I know we just confirmed Chuck that uh, we will refer to our, our nurse as Kate. Uh, Kate sent us this email yeah, and uh, very well the, written. Yeah. Very well written. Um, the uh, then offered, you know, agreed to come on and talk about it. And with what's happening mm-hmm. with police departments across the country and fire departments across the country, I thought it would be uh Great to have her on and to have her perspective. And so Chuck got in touch with her and, uh, she go ahead. She gave us the go ahead to, to, to get her scheduled. And so here she is. Hello, Kate. How are you?
2: Good. How are you?
0: Oh, we just, uh, we just finished reading your email to the listeners and, uh, on the heels of everything that's happening with nurses across the country and firefighters and police officers across the country having to decide between their career. Or being forced to get this shot, uh, I felt your email was very, very well written and very topical.
2: Thank you.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was a really, really well thought out, really well written uh, email, and you know, it, it brought up a lot of things from for, for myself working during this whole pandemic. Um, you know, and it, it's crazy. You, you're saying have, you had to reuse masks. Where mm-hmm. at my station they weren't even providing masks or they were providing, you know, child masks. And I'm a big adult male and it doesn't fit on my face, but we had to do it to stay in compliance. And you had to often go out without masks and then, and then deal with people who are sick. Yeah. They might give you two weeks off, but at the same time, you're not getting sick or you test positive, but no symptoms. And you're like, this is, this is, this is completely crazy. So I I, I just was one blown away because, you know, being so close and, with the nursing community as being a police officer and working and, and dealing hand in hand with nurses inside of the hospitals. This is a very, very well written email.
2: Thank you. Thank and you. It, um, what actually happened was I I got to a point where I was very frustrated um, with everything happening, um, everything I had experienced. And I I decided that I didn't want to be a nurse anymore. And I realized that when I had that moment of realization, I needed to write down why, because it would come to a point where I, maybe this pandemic would fade into the background and I might not remember the reasons or the feelings that I felt um, in that moment. So it, it, um, that's kind of how that came about.
0: Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and walk us back a little bit. How did you get into nursing and how long have you been a nurse?
2: So I got into nursing right after high school. I've been a nurse for seven years, um, and I originally wanted to go into the medical profession, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, Um, and so I started out in nursing school because it was two years initially, and I thought, if I don't like it, you know, I can switch to something else, but at least I'll have that medical foundation under my belt, Um, and I, I got into it, and I really enjoyed it, so I pursued it. Um, I started off in long-term care and uh med surge, and then from there I went to um home health and pediatrics and eventually ended up in psychiatric nursing.
0: Okay. So that hence the the psychiatric wing of the hospital that you were mentioning right. in your letter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And how how is uh how has that been for you? I mean obviously it's all been all hands on deck you know, at the height of the pandemic and then with the staffing shortage. So I'm guessing that while you're, you know, specializing in psychiatric nursing, you've probably been thrown into just about everything in the last 18 months.
2: Yeah. Just about everything. Um, I worked on our medical psychiatric unit, so we got, um, the patients from that hospital that were medically ill. So uh, naturally, my unit became the COVID-19 unit and, uh, so it was it was definitely something that no one had experienced before, but um, I I feel like it could have been handled better. Um, I got into psychiatric nursing because I, I found out it was actually by accident. Um, I was supposed to be in a pediatric position and got um, thrown into a psychiatric position with PEDS, but I found out that I loved it and I wanted to pursue it further. So um, I did that for a couple of years and ended up on this medical psych unit which went really well um, until COVID hit.
0: And how, how did it change? Like in right in well, let me backtrack a little bit, explain kind of the, the how a psychiatric unit nursing unit works. Cause people might not necessarily right. understand they may have been in the ER. They may have visited a relative in the hospital, having a baby or, or, or staying overnight for a procedure or because they've got pneumonia, but ER nursing, in, if you can kind of explain the difference maybe with psychiatric nursing as opposed to ER.
2: Um, so psychiatric is usually um, moderate to long-term patient care where uh, patients come into the hospital and they, uh, it's a locked unit. Um, for safety reasons, and you usually get to know them over the course of three or four months. So they um, usually attend uh, different treatments and different therapies throughout the day. Uh, they intermingle with each other and um, meet with tons of different providers each day, from therapists to uh, doctors to try to figure out how to help them. Um, they they have a lot of freedom within, within the hospital from day to day, but they also have a, a, a schedule to follow. So um, when COVID hit, All of those freedoms that they had were kind of taken away because people didn't, the administration didn't really understand how to deal with these um, patients being sick and how to best approach it. So, for example... Um, normally, a, a patient might wake up, eat breakfast, and then they would go to um, treatment classes all day, where they would learn, you know, coping skills and how to survive in the world, um, how, how to get over their mental illness. And there would be a lot of groups where they'd mingle with other patients. And the idea behind that is that it's supposed to help them recover. Just, just kind of right. similar to like um, like you like any treatment program, really. Um, So
0: it's, it's similar to rehab, but yeah, it's it's similar to psychiatric. Okay. And what, and so what sorts of diagnoses do you see regularly?
2: Um, Everything from uh, depression to schizophrenia, there, there's a long, long list and you get patients that are brand new that have never seen treatment before. And sometimes you get patients that are um it's their third or fourth time being in the hospital because maybe they don't uh, take their medications as scheduled or maybe you know they had a drug relapse or um family issues that set them back
0: right right a lot of a lot of people maybe understand there's a big tie between drug abuse and psychiatric uh, conditions because a lot of people are self-medicating
2: right a lot of people are and um there's there's a lot of uh there's a big tie between psychiatric nursing and trauma as well. Um, so you get a lot of patients that maybe just sometimes they'll just come in for the weekend and they just need a break, you know? Um, and sometimes you get patients that have uh, severe trauma from the time they were a child. And so they're in and out of the system. Um, but it, it ranges.
1: Right. And, and, and for your unit to become a COVID unit, What did that do and how did that change that psychiatric unit?
2: So typically um, we would get patients that might be mildly sick or they might be dehydrated um, within the hospital. So they send them up to us to, you know, maybe get a bag of fluids or um, just treat them for whatever they had, a fever, a cold, whatever. When COVID hit, um, we all of a sudden got where we might have four patients on the unit, all of a sudden we had um, 10 or 12 patients overnight. So, number one, that put a lot of strain on the hospital staff because they they weren't equipped to deal with that um, overnight. And number two, the unit went from being where the patients were able to leave their rooms um, if they were medically well and intermingle with other patients to you have to stay in your room um, because you're contagious. So, um, imagine, you know, you're a psychiatric patient who's been admitted to this hospital And you're already confused. Maybe you're already having hallucinations or delusions, and you're just getting used to this unit that you're on. And then someone comes to you and says, hey, you have to go to a completely new unit with completely new staff. And also you have to be in your own room and you're not allowed to talk to anyone. And I think um, that was the biggest change for not only nursing staff, but also for the patients was that
0: well yeah the isolation yeah that it, it feels like you know i mean there's study after study that solitary confinement and and isolation is not good for your mental well-being so on i can imagine on a psych ward the in instantaneous negative impact
2: right so um we'd have a patient um we had a patient that came up and she was freshly admitted to the hospital and uh they had just started her medication kind of you know she'd probably been there less than a week i'd say They just started her medication and um, we're trying to get her on the right track. And she tested positive for COVID. So she had to come up to our unit. Um, She was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So she was very paranoid. And once they put her um, in a room and said, hey, you can't leave. All of a sudden, that paranoia that we were working on came back. She thought she was going to die there. She stopped taking her medication because she thought she was being poisoned. So um, although some of it was necessary, it really... It was a difficult path to navigate.
0: Well, yeah, because you're trying to establish trust with, I mean, that's, that's the trust is, you know, a difficult thing in a hospital for nurses. I'm sure anyway, because you got to get patients to trust you, but, you know, normal, healthy, well-adjusted, not mentally ill people should be able to understand rationally, you know, despite having a little white coat fever that Mm -hmm. nurses are there to help them. Not so for the mentally ill.
2: Right. Not so. Um, so it was really hard to try to explain to someone who already wasn't mentally well that um, you have to stay in your in your room to keep everyone else safe because they didn't understand. They didn't. You know, they were some of them were asymptomatic. Like, what are you what do you mean? You're telling me that I'm sick and I can't leave my room. I don't understand. Um, so now, was this
0: they had tested positive for sure?
2: Yeah. Yeah. OK. Okay. Um. So. It became this battle where, you know, not really, I'd say, I I think there's a better word, but that's the first one that comes to mind. It became this battle where the patients wanted to leave because they got used to, I attend groups, I see other patients, I see the doctors, you know, throughout my day regularly to you have to stay in your room confined. And um, it made it more difficult because it's a psychiatric hospital. So those rooms don't have anything in them for patient safety. They don't have TVs. Mm. They don't have, um, they have nothing. Um, so really they were in these rooms where maybe the best thing they could get for interaction or entertainment was a phone call.
1: Like a prison cell. Wow. Yeah, yeah, right?
2: Yeah, it is. It, and it's, it's really for patient safety, but there's, I mean, it's necessary, but it sucks if you're confined to that room for 24 hours a day.
0: But I mean, mm. you. here's the thing, at what point, Is it necessary? Necessary. I understand early on when they're not sure, you know, they might have to take some extra precautions. They have to, but, but you can't use the same treatment program for the psychiatric patients as you, you can't just, you know, oh, well, that works for the ER, it works for the ICU, it works for the maternity ward. That's what we're going to do for the psych. It's not the same thing.
2: It's not. So, what they did was they said, um, all the patients that are refusing to stay in their rooms and stay in isolation precautions we're going to write a medical restraint order for them. And um, normally a medical restraint is used for something that is very critical and um, that the patient needs in order to sustain life. Like for example, some medications like Closaril, you have to take, you have to get draw weekly labs um, to make sure that those levels are safe in the body. So if the patient were to refuse, but the medication just started working or, um, uh, they think that it might be helpful. They might say, Hey, let's put them in a medical restraint, get these labs. Cause long-term that's going to be more beneficial than the restraint is harmful. Does that make sense?
0: Right. 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 It's, it's the same idea behind a felony arrest with a forced blood draw. You have yeah. to weigh, you know, the gravity of the offense or the right. benefit to society against, you know, the loss of one person's personal liberty.
2: But the issue of using medical restraints for patients um, who tested COVID-19 positive was what I personally saw was that it was more harmful to them long-term to be locked in those rooms than it was beneficial for everyone else. Because we, all the staff, we can still wear PPE, you know, we can still, we can still wear our masks when we leave the nurse's station, it wouldn't have been an issue, but The isolation of the patients, them not receiving treatment for weeks and um, being confused and refusing their medications was damaging.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, think of, you know, all the horror stories you hear coming out of nursing homes, Mm -hmm. you know, the elderly, the isolation of the elderly, the isolation of the mentally ill, the isolation. uh, You know, I have a I have a friend. I went to elementary school with her and she died in the hospital of covid and or of complications due to getting the COVID virus however the hell mm-hmm. you're supposed to say it I don't know and you know she died alone yeah um, because nobody was allowed to come see her
2: right and you know, uh, that's that's awful it is it is and so one of the first things that they did when um COVID got introduced was they stopped all visitations to the hospital like um parents for children weren't allowed to come visit relatives friends no one was allowed to come visit these patients and that's actually still ongoing um, the only change is that they're allowed a 10 minute visit with um, staff or I'm sorry, yeah, with, that, the, with family, <laughs> which I don't understand the, at all.
1: <laughs> what's the difference between 10 minutes and an hour? If right. you're infected, right. y- you're going to, you could possibly transmit it within the first minute. Cause you give hugs, kisses, whatever, right. uh, you know, like you go to see your, and they did that at the beginning where someone's father or grandfather or grandmother or mother or whatever were dying and they wouldn't let anyone in the room and the person died alone you know mm-hmm. and it wasn't necessarily with covid it was just due to covid precautions they weren't allowing anybody in the room and i mean i had my kid during during covid this whole lockdown stuff and i was like if they don't let I mean, me to in be the room fair, we're have a had problem
0: your wife your kid
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they 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 made me what it made us wear masks and everything, you know, and and but they wouldn't allow anybody in. People were having to come to the windows and and like look in and Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's it crazy. And I was like this is this is nuts. I mean, like at, at the beginning, it was it was weird because you're like, "Well, we really don't understand it," but you're like, "Okay, I guess I can go along with it." But now I, it's just like, "No, like this is this is too much."
2: Yeah, it well, um it really got to a point where uh I started to seeing that what I was taught and what I knew to be true about infection control wasn't being followed. The policies weren't there and nothing really made any sense. Like, um, for example, you know, staff had to wear PPE the whole nine yards to go take a COVID test on someone um, in admissions. But as soon as that patient left admissions, you didn't have to have PPE anymore, despite not having the results of that test back yet. It didn't, it doesn't add up. Uh, it, it didn't add up then. It still doesn't add up. Um, and I think that's Well, those are the same my... rules that
0: make you wear a mask when you walk into a restaurant, but you don't have to wear it while you're eating.
2: Exactly. They don't make any sense. And yeah. I think that's part of where my frustration started to come from um, with nursing. I I I didn't understand why everything I had been taught, no one, the entire world was now ignoring.
1: Right. And you right. know what I saw that was really weird inside of a hospital? I was in an ICU. Uh, COVID, they're all COVID patients. And we had a, a suspect there that we had to babysit, you know, 24 hours a day and originally we were on the outside for the majority of the time you know of the icu because you're like oh it's a COVID icu like we're not going to go in there let us know when you want to we'll throw on a mask we'll go in there we'll handcuff unhandcuff do whatever you need mm-hmm. but for the most part the person was in a, in a coma a medically induced coma because of the injuries this person had sustained um and the uh infection with COVID. then when i got a chance to go on this this uh cake medical detail it's like okay cool you know i, I get to just at this hospital and watch TV all day. They're like, "Hey, he's waking up. We need you hands on." So basically, we spent the next ten hours inside of the COVID ICU ward, and they had some negative pressure pressure rooms and stuff like that. And uh, the only thing they asked us when we walked into the room was, "Hey, put your mask on. Um, if you want, throw on an N95 and your regular like like that little paper blue mm-hmm. paper mask thing, and yeah, uh, the triple layer whatever. Yeah, which prevents you know, like spittle and shit. You know, mm-hmm. it, you can still get dust and stuff through it." And we're like, okay. And I went in there and I was like, well, I don't really like these N95. So I wore it once and then the next rest of the time I just wore the uh little surgical mask. But then when we would come back, because we had to sit in at the nurse's station watching uh the person, the suspect, um, we could eat, we could drink, we could take the mask off, you know, do whatever. And I was like, Well, that's so, so weird. Like that we can go in there, we don't have any PPE on the only thing we have on is is a mask, and if we decide to put our gloves on, mm-hmm. and then everything else. We can basically touch and take our mask off and do whatever, you know, um, for the most part and interact with everybody else on the floor. And I just thought that was super strange and I never got sick from it. You know, I, I had COVID at the beginning, but I, you know, I never, no one, none of us that went there for the, for the for the two weeks that we were on this detail, no one got sick. No one got COVID. None of the nurses, I even spoke to the nurses and they are like, none of us have gotten COVID this whole 18 months. And, um. The only person that did get COVID was doing CPR on someone who'd coded who was um, sick with COVID. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, due to the fact of the compressions, they've got, um, I guess, they pressed it out into their face and they weren't yeah. wearing a mask. Yeah. Right. And that was it.
2: So that didn't make sense to me either. Um, we, because, you know, it's a psychiatric hospital psychiatric unit. Uh, we have two negative pressure rooms, which are required by the state. Um, before COVID the biggest airborne illness that really the medical professionals were dealing with was tuberculosis and that's not very relevant these days right a lot of people are vaccinated right. or a lot of people don't really have it um so but we still had those rooms on board in case you ever got a patient with tuberculosis so when COVID-19 was introduced and they were like oh it's airborne I remember looking at my coworkers and thinking, Oh my God, it's airborne. Like, what, what are we going to do? Because we have two negative pressure rooms and 500 patients in this hospital. Like, uh, there's no way we can treat them all properly. So what they started to do was they filled up those two negative pressure rooms and then they were just putting them in regular patient rooms, these COVID positive patients. And I thought, wow, if this virus is airborne, then then we're not safe because it's now in the hallways. It's, it's everywhere because they aren't in the proper rooms, but I still didn't get sick from it. And I, I thought that was really weird and I'm not discrediting that it is airborne, but I don't understand this, the, the science behind that, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I'll say that um, I may not be an expert on uh, virology. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm an expert on virology. Uh, the the closest I get to being an expert on virology is, is seeing 28 days later and other zombie uh-huh. movies. <laughs> uh, however, I did spend two weeks at lab school. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have to get certified to go into a meth lab, uh, you know, protecting you against methyl ethyl bad shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in those in those particles, it's very similar to how you would respond to uh, an incident that maybe is a viral outbreak or biological warfare. It, you know, you have the hot zone, you have the decontamination zone, you have all that's. It's all the same protocols. Mm-hmm. So I am familiar with some of the protocols and I am familiar with personal protective equipment up to level A. I'm not certified in level A, but I know what it takes. And I know that people going into labs against the virus have to wear level A. A, okay. if you don't want to get it, period. Yeah. So, for me, full blown mop suit. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I'm as I'm watching people try to protect themselves against a virus that it, at the beginning that when they're like, hey, we don't know how quickly this spreads. We don't know anything about it. We don't know this. We don't know that. We don't know how long it stays alive on a surface. We okay in the beginning when they're trying to be cautious and they're asking people to wear masks when they go outside and stand six feet away from each other. It just Try and slow the spread so ERs don't get overwhelmed. Blah bitty, blah 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 blah. I get that
2: mm-hmm.
0: early on, but the more they started to understand about it, the more they understand how it gets transmitted. The more they understand that it's you know with versus droplet based versus airborne versus all this and all that, they don't adjust the protocols to common sense, you know, flu virus type protocols. Right. Because here is the deal: unless you are in level A. You're, you then <laughs> it doesn't nothing, matter. <laughs> the rest of it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Don't spit on people. Coughing. You know, all those things that a hospital normally does to protect against the spread of influenza mm-hmm. is kind of the same protocols that you would need to protect against this because it's kind. It say what you want about death rates and survival rates and all. This, it's kind of the same thing.
2: Yes. So I remember um, when we had really low PPE in the beginning, They, I came to work one day and they said, um, well, we don't have enough PPE for everyone. So here's what we're going to do. They gave us, uh, uh, I think it was three N95 masks and three paper bags and, and three Ziploc bags. And they said, um, you're going to wear your mask for for the entire shift and then you're going to put it in a baggie. And the next day you're going to wear the second mask, and then the third one. Right. And then you're going to rotate them. So after you get done with the third one, you're going to go back to the first one. And I, yeah, yeah. So we would essentially (laughs) use all three masks twice. And um, we looked at each other and we said, this doesn't make sense because when you're taking off an N95 mask, you know, there's certain, there's a certain way that you do it so that you, because you consider the outside of it contaminated right and you don't want to touch that and then you you take it off a certain way and throw it away never touching the outside of the mask because that's where the that's where the virus is that's where whatever contaminant you're dealing with is it's on the outside of that mask so when you take that dirty mask and you put it in a ziploc baggie i don't understand the logic behind thinking that the contaminant is not going to travel to the inside of the mask while it's in that baggie. The, you know what I'm it's saying? It's a petri dish. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a petri dish. Just, and that's exactly what we said. It didn't make any sense. Um, but they had us do it. Would, if weeks. they said
0: to you, like, hey, put it in this, put it in this little UV locker or spray it with this, you know, yeah. Something other than just put it in a put it in a put it in a block. Yeah. The and I think, it, that, mean,
2: I think some hospitals uh, did have them sterilized, like with UV. I think some of the bigger hospitals, maybe in New York or something. Um, I think I remember seeing something about that on social media. However, ours did not. The psychiatric hospital, they're severely underfunded, no matter where you go in America.
0: Right. Um, right. So unfortunately,
2: yes, unfortunately. And so we didn't have that, that special equipment. Um, but I still, after that was asking myself, like, why haven't I got gotten sick? I don't understand this. If it's actually airborne, even if it's contact precautions or droplet precautions, I don't understand how I haven't gotten sick from this. You
0: know, it's funny. I'm so, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to ask a oh, question. Go
1: ahead. Oh, okay. I was going to say. You know what's funny, that, and this doesn't surprise me whatsoever, because when this whole thing was going on, when they finally gave us masks at work, um, we did not have N95s. Um, they didn't have any. There wasn't a shortage or whatever. So they ended up making masks out of t-shirts. Oh wow. Mm. Um. Yeah. And they made some masks out of cloth. <laughs> also very safe. And then, and then, then, then we got children's masks. Oh, and then yeah. we had children and adult, but they were just like the little three layer uh, um, blue ones. And then, and then we got some N95s, mm. but we would often run out. So you would have to grab one because you can only grab one. And then they're like, hey, if you run out, make sure you save your mask, re- take it on and off after every call, mm-hmm. um, wear it in the car, do all this other craziness. And then at the end of the day, just leave it in your war bag. And then the oh. next day, put it back on. And we're like, I started thinking, I'm like, this is how do you keep track of which side is which yeah you're like yeah you're like this isn't sanitary and i was like so i have an n95 but you want me to keep it in my bag after i use it and you would go and put it on and it was like one size for everybody and so the the females the smaller females it was swamped on their face Mm -hmm. and then the bigger males it would barely fit and it wouldn't fit around their ear and like for me i would try to pop it on my ear and it would snap and so I, I wouldn't be able to wear it because the seal is gone. It's, it's broken. Right. And so often at the beginning, we weren't wearing masks because we couldn't. And so we were in the thick of it, dealing with people going into, you know, COVID hotels and stuff like that. And we were all like exposed. And and it doesn't surprise me at, at all that, that hospitals would do that because I went to a hospital one time for a biological, um, like an attack weapon or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to, I think it was biological. Yeah. I was exposed to ricin Mm. and they did the hospital. They treated us at, which was a major um, trauma center. They did not know how to treat us. They basically, we had a whole engine, Mm -hmm. uh, three officers Uh were all stuck in this one room. And not to mention, I was the last one to get transported. And I had touched everything that came out of the apartment. I was dealing with everything. And the guy was cooking it in his apartment. And I finally went up to the supervisor after I had already door knocked a bunch of houses for like two hours and I was wearing gloves the whole time because I had touched the bag and put it, gloves on to just make sure that I was contaminated, but no one else was. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to the supervisor. I'm like, Hey, just FYI, this is what happened. He's like, Oh, you got to go. They transported me with the, the 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 rescue ambulance. We went to the hospital. They pulled me off. I was the only one who had to get down into his underwear oh, inside wow. of a broom closet, no shower, no decontamination. They said, we'll just have your partner grab your clothes. And I'm like, but if I've already touched my clothes, isn't that person contaminated? Then they put me in a room by myself. And then I asked to go into the room with my uh with one of the other guys I knew because we were all contaminated. And in the hallway of just where everyone's walking back and forth, you had about 15 firefighters, 10 to 15 firefighters. Yeah. I, remember it was. I didn't take a head count, but it was a lot. It was just to see firefighters that were all supposedly contaminated. And if we, it was like legit and mm-hmm. it was active we would have screwed that whole hospital. Yeah, you like would have ricin. Hospital. You We'd can't be, mess yeah. with
2: ricin. It's actually like no, something I've no. only ever read about. I, that's crazy yeah. that you, ha- you came in contact with
1: it. Yeah. So it tested. We had to call hazmat. Tested mm-hmm. positive, but not activated. He wow. missed one ingredient.
2: Wow, that's so lucky. We came
1: so close to just screwing over one ourselves yeah. and the whole hospital and the, all the nursing staff. And I was like, look, and I'm like, dude, like, we're all in different levels of clothing. Mm-hmm. I'm the only right. one that's basically naked. Right. We're like we started laughing about it. We're like, this is comical. Like, this is crazy. So it doesn't surprise me that even something like this, that was so like deadly and caustic and nasty, and it could have screwed over a whole hospital, to where now we come into a pandemic and then they're still mismanaging things. They're still mismanaging. They don't know how to properly handle it.
2: So yeah. um, I wanted to give a little background um, because I I talked about the um, the donning rooms uh, connected to the negative pressure rooms in my paper. I just wanted to explain on that a little bit um backing off of what you're just saying how it was mismanaged so there these negative pressure rooms have what's called an anti-room right um so it's a it's like this tiny little room next door that has all of your ppe in it and in between that room and the patient's room is a door that door is not locked um so we would don our ppe on and then step into the patient's room right um, but because that door was not locked, but the patient's uh, door to the outside hallway was, the patients started opening that door to the anteroom, right? They're desperate. They want to get out there. They're, they're, they feel trapped. Um, and they would we would find them in these anterooms. Administration found out about that, um, and they said... Well, since the patients who are COVID positive are in your um, anti room, where you put on your PPE, you can't use it anymore because it's no longer it's no longer clean and they've contaminated it. Who knows what who knows what they've touched? Even though every time that we entered and exited that anteroom, we would wipe it down with sanit wipes thoroughly every surface that we could have touched. They said you can't use that room anymore because it's contaminated. So we instead want you to. Stand in the hallway outside of the patient's room, put on your PPE and then step into the patient's room, which completely, you know, kind of um, undoes what the, the point of the negative pressure room is because the the point of that room is that it's completely closed off from the main hallway. The only exposure would be to that anteroom, right? So you, right. you never have that, that contaminant out in, in the central air system, but, um, right. By opening that door to the hallway and stepping into the patient's room. Now that contaminant is out in the hallway. And then they went on to further say, we said, well, how are we going to take off this contaminated PPE? And they said, well, you can just, you know, there's a trash can in the patient's room, so you can just take off all your PPE, um, except for your N95 mask and throw it away in the patient's room and then just step into the hallway. And we thought, But the point of the PPE, these gowns and these gloves is to protect our clothing and protect our skin so that we're not contaminated. So it doesn't make any sense to do that because now you're you're infected and the the hallway is infected. And it just it made no sense at all. Um, And I actually had a a nurse that I worked with look at the manager and say, "Um, if you're asking me to do this, then I'm going to strip naked before I step into that hallway because all of my clothes are contaminated. (laughs) And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so after, uh, I mean, I guess some, you some can people, sum up this
0: entire COVID experience by saying it doesn't make any sense.
2: Yes. So, um, I, some people followed it. Um, other people's, other people ignored it and just continued to use the anti-rooms and, um, it didn't make, it didn't matter. Cause the people who made the rules, you know, never checked to see if you were not using the anti-room anyways, so I thought I wanted to explain that a little bit better because some people may not be familiar with the negative. Understood freshers.
0: with the donning and doffing and negative. Yeah. yeah. Well. And the negative pressure room itself is it, correct me if I'm wrong. It basically prevents whatever is whatever air or whatever contaminants are in the room from going out the door into the hospital. It pulls it out. Yeah, it's it like co- it constantly mm-hmm. got suction in in the room yeah. that ventilates it out of the room instead of br- blowing air into the room. Right, and exactly. That's pretty yeah. great. So, so for people that don't understand what a negative pressure room is, that's what that is. It's usually for people with highly communicable diseases that if it gets out into the hospital, screws everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so cut to the vaccine, and I, I, what what's been upsetting to me is I've seen people that are gravely injured or, or as and as long as they're conscien, conscious and they can sign an informed consent medical release, they don't have to go anywhere or do anything. Mm-hmm. I've seen that for years with the, the, the fire, fire firefighters and the ambulance crews showing up on scene, talking to somebody, if they're talking and they're conscious and they don't want to go, they can sign a form that says, I am doing this against medical advice. I'm not going to hold anybody else liable. I'm the one responsible for me and what happens to me. Fuck off.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and informed consent and, is so important for that reason.
0: Right. And yet now what you said about, you know, they, they asked you to toe the party line. They asked you to go along with these stupid protocols. They asked you to make decisions you felt were questionable. You thought that you were doing it all in the name of, trying to stop or slow this pandemic. And now it turns out that they are mandating you to get this vaccine a lot with a lot like the firefighters and the, the police officers. And if you don't, you're fired essentially.
2: Yeah. And that's, um, that is the ultimate point where I decided I didn't want to do this anymore. I felt like what I had contributed and my values as a nurse no longer mattered like it I, I you know part of the reason everyone goes into nursing and something that you'll always hear in nursing school calling. is yeah it's a calling and then the one thing you'll always hear in nursing school is oh you'll always have a job i can't tell yeah. you how many times <laughs> i've heard that yeah like, uh, yep. you will always have a job and then all of yep. a sudden um i i had the threat of not having a job and it didn't right. matter that I hadn't gotten sick. It didn't matter that I cared for my patients and put my life at risk. They didn't care, um, right. and I felt and, and, and
0: the rules are arbitrary,
2: right? the The rules are arbitrary. Um, it it seemed like the more that I read about it and found out about it, it felt like first responders, um, nurses, firefighters, paramedics were kind of being the target of this vaccine mandate. Even if they didn't want it, despite having already been through this entire pandemic and the people making the vaccine or the people in government had it weren't being held to the same standards.
0: Right. And and I don't get me wrong. Like, I am not an anti-vaxxer.
1: Oh, I'm not In the traditional either.
0: sense of the words. But- I am related to some. I am related to some people that have kids that didn't get them the MMR inoculation didn't get them, you know, and that's, that's their choice. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. y- you don't want to get the polio mm-hmm. vaccine or you don't want to get MMR. Or you don't want to get uh, the crew. I, I, fine. Don't get whatever vaccines you don't want to get. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and I, whatever those things mean. But now we're being told that this experimental one, that's not like the other ones, that's not proven safe and, you know, efficacious and all, now it's an experimental one that mm-hmm. oh it slows the spread well no it doesn't actually do that it stops it The stops it though right no no it no doesn't. it doesn't prevents do that me from getting it. <laughs> no. no 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 it doesn't do that oh. it prevents me from mm. giving it to other people so i no no it doesn't do that either no well, so what does it do well, it makes it so that hopefully if you get it you won't die
2: mm-hmm.
0: um keep i got it. it and i didn't so die it.
2: right but there are some people I, that got it And did die, and then it's kind of ironic and comical because they're saying, "Oh, if they haven't got the the COVID nineteen vaccine, it could have been a lot worse." They died. Like, how could they have been worse?
1: So, (laughs) right. Let me let me piggyback on this. Um, I I uh, I'm not anti-vax vax vax either. You know, I've had vaccines as a military. I have a lot of vaccines, including H one N one, the swine flu. That shit was forced upon us while we were there. And then all of a sudden, nothing was talked about it anymore. The country went dark on it and everyone just forgot about it. Was it still there? Absolutely. I, I have never been so sick from a vaccine in my life. And I, I, I was the worst pain in my life. And at the age of like 19 years old, I was like, I am never going to do a forced vaccine ever again in my life mm-hmm. that I have not already had, like, like a flu vaccine or whatever. Yeah. Something like, that's like proven, not. like, yeah.
0: You know, and people have been mm-hmm. getting this for years.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I talked to other people when I got out, I was like, oh, Hey, did you ever get that vaccine? They're like, no. And I was like, oh shit, I did. Oh wow. And you know, I have typhoid and all that other stuff in, in a bunch of different vaccines. And then when I was in the hospital in the ICU ward, and I was speaking to all of the nurses in there, cause what do I have to do all day mm-hmm. for 10 hours, but you know, shoot the shit. Right. And I was at least you had good company. Right. (laughs) right. I I was picking their brains. Um and they basically told me that that uh the only people they've ever seen in this ICU, which to me contradicted the whole narrative across the country, um, was like really sick people that had extenuating circumstances that were elderly, that were older, that have diabetes, heart conditions, Mm -hmm. you know, cancers and things like that that were super, super, super high risk that they were they were already sick to begin with and they got this and this was kind of the last nail in the coffin for them, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. And God rest their souls, and it's a horrible thing to go out with, you know. But and I was like, Man, that's that's crazy, you know, like I like nothing no one's ever been here that's been, you know, younger or in good shape or whatever. And they're like, No, we haven't seen one person in here. And there has been a few outliers that have been in decent health, but then you really start talking to their friends and family. And then there was an underlying symptom. Like there was an underlying mm-hmm. cause or whatever that caused them to get, or the maybe they out. had one that they didn't know about.
2: Right. A congenital heart defect exactly. or something.
0: I mean, right. and- seriously, the people are so in it, the flu, the flu. Every time you, this is my, my, my idea is just everybody stop getting tested. And here's why. Did you go get tested every time you got the, got a cold?
2: No, no. right.
0: Right. You you had the sniffles and a runny nose and a sore throat. And you were like, oh, I know what this feels like. This feels like a cold. And usually it goes away in two or three days. <laughs> and then two or three days later, when it went away, you didn't worry about it. Same thing with the flu. Oh, this is the flu. I know I'm gonna be down for a week. I should really mm-hmm. be careful and not be around anybody, wash my hands, da da. Stay on the couch, throw have a have a wastebasket next to me for all my gross tissues. Call it good. Mm-hmm. Did you go get tested? No. So right. how many times have you, have you had a cold or had the flu or had one, some symptoms and not known what exactly it was that you had
1: oh, uh, Probably at least
0: two or three times a year Yeah, for your whole life. Right. And now, because you get a little sick and like, Oh my God, I have to go get tested. What if this is COVID? Well, what if it is?
2: Right. And, it, and mean, the other side of that is You know, they're they're making us getting, those who aren't vaccinated, we have to get tested every week. It doesn't matter if you have symptoms or not, right? Oh, you're not vaccinated, so you have to get a test every single week. My issue with that is um, I recently read an evidence-based research article that stated that the chance of um, vaccinated persons becoming infected with COVID-19 was somewhere around like um, 23% for the household, right? The chance of unvaccinated people becoming infected with COVID-19 was 25%. So if vaccinated people can still <laughs> contract and spread the virus, why aren't they having to be tested?
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know, or, or why, if I have to go get a surgery, do I, that does not have a vaccine have to go get tested show my 72 hours that i'm clean and not dirty um because that's the way they make me feel as dirty and <laughs> like yeah, if if they say they also told me but hey if you're vaccinated you don't have to do any of that you just show on up and we're cool and i'm like uh but they can you, still
0: do the same shit as the un- but you know yeah oh, but yeah. you know like uh, that
1: so yeah. if if I'm vaccinated and I, I'm COVID, you don't give a shit. Yeah, it but doesn't if I'm even matter. Non-vaccinated and I don't have COVID, you give a shit. Exactly. That yeah. I don't have sense. COVID. Right. It's it's crazy. My dad had COVID. He was vaccinated. He's vaccinated. It's, it's fucking nuts. And and it's just it's completely. Mm-hmm.
2: My dad had COVID too. Right after he was vaccinated. Um, and he has a lot of underlying health conditions, but he did have COVID. Um, he was out for a little bit, but he said it was kind of like the flu. Um, yeah. One of and if the, people want to get
0: vaccinated, go get vaccinated. Right,
2: go. I encourage it. But stop it. telling
0: us what to do.
2: Right, exactly. look and, like a
0: Muppet when I do. I look very much <laughs> like, a, like a puppet getting very angry.
2: <laughs> so when, when the vaccine first came out, um, I did some research on my own because I, I like to be informed. It's something they teach you, you know, in this profession is you need to have evidence-based stuff. You need to know what you're talking about before you say it so that you can maintain your credibility. So I did some research and I can't cite the exact um, article, but... I found out that the mRNA, uh, uh, the mRNA formula that they were using to make the vaccines, they right, had the inoculation. Been, yeah, they had been developing it in um, labs for uh, the last ten years um, to treat things like HIV, um, a couple of other things that we really haven't found cures for. But it had never been released on the market. This mRNA technology because it had always failed. So for the last 10 years, they've been trying and trying and trying to release this um, technology and it hasn't worked. There's been awful side effects. It's it's just not worked at all. When COVID-19 of a big study. So when COVID-19 came out and they were like, hey, guess what? This mRNA uh, technology that we have, we made it work. We made it work in, you know, six months, a year. Boom. Uh, We couldn't figure it out for 10 years. But in the last year, we figured out the, the secret. I thought to myself. If it hasn't worked for 10 years, how did they fix it that quickly?
0: Right. In Ironic. 10 months. Yeah. Well, yeah. we appreciate you coming on because I thought your plight was very similar to the to what's been going on. And I've I've got a firefighter friend who's been on this show who shall remain nameless that is hitting me hard. You guys, we shared it on social media. Unfortunately, for some reason, it's shared upside down. I can't figure oh. out why, <laughs> but it's a letter from... A fire department basically telling everybody get the vaccine or you're out. Wow. And yep, like just done. Mm. No, no, that's it. There's a lot. There's there's a lot of bullshit going on. So so, so. it's a lot. And I I, want to tell people, and I want to tell my vaccinated people this: you need to stand with the unvaccinated people. You need to not be that dick who goes just go get fucking vaccinated and make it easier for everybody. No, because the next time when it's something that you don't want to do, there's going to be no one to stand up for you. Yeah. So mm-hmm. this is about, this is about personal freedom. This is not about like, oh, just do it already. Everybody's doing it. That's called fucking peer pressure. And it didn't work when you tried to get me to smoke weed in seventh right. grade. And it's my mom told me, now.
2: and my mom told me if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? Would you do it? Yeah. Exactly. And now as an adult, I'm like, mm, no <laughs> mom, I wouldn't. Thanks mom.
1: <laughs> hey, I have some right. Kool-Aid. Um, everybody here has taken it. They're
0: just asleep right now. Just you should it. take it too. Yeah. 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 Same so
2: concept.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, Chuck, I believe you have somebody that we can dedicate this episode to. I posted about this on social media, but uh, we wanted to dedicate this episode. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Firefighter and father of three dies weeks after suffering severe burns on the job. He fought so hard. Lieutenant Malachi Brown of Baxter Springs, Kansas, died almost a month after he was injured while fighting on fire on uh, October 15th. A Kansas community is mourning the loss of a beloved firefighter who died nearly four weeks after he was seriously injured during a blaze. While fighting a structure fire on October 15th, Lieutenant Malachi Brown of Baxter Springs Fire Auxiliary experienced severe severe third-degree burns over a fourth of his body. His wife, Jessica Brown, shared in a post to Facebook, last month, Brown was flown to a burn unit in Missouri where he was sedated and placed on a ventilator to help with swelling and pain management. While doctors made it clear Brown would have a long road toward recovery, they expressed hope he could <clears throat> leave the hospital by the end of the year. There has been nothing official, but after talking to several nurses, it may be uh, December before he can he gets to leave the hospital, hopefully to go home, but could be rehab facility for uh, physical therapy. She said, if he gets to go home sooner, that would be amazing. If he has to stay later... um. To be healthy and safe—that's all that matters. This is right. the closest thing to a timeline we have gotten. Um, and uh, I have a uh, real quick.
0: Subsequently, he he ended up succumbing to his injuries. He he did not make he it did. home.
1: No, and this was from uh, FEMA right here. Um, On Friday, October 15th, 2021, Lieutenant Malachi Brown was working on the scene of a residential fire where he suffered third-degree burns. He was transported to the Springfield Burn Unit and was placed in a a medically-induced coma. Lieutenant Malachi Brown succumbed to his injuries on Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. He was 32 years old, the rank of lieutenant. He was a volunteer firefighter. Uh, He died on um, November 10th, 2021, suffered burns, and uh, was a residential fire.
0: Well, rest easy, brother. We got it from yes. here. And uh we I appreciate everybody. Family. All yeah, and all and and think about this all the nurses out there, all the firefighters out there, all the cops out there, those people that are putting their lives on the line and willing to to die and leave their families to put out a fire, they're all being told, Hey, you don't want to get this ouchie, fuck off. So mm-hmm. If you if you if you agree with that, by all means, but if you agree with that, by all means, also stop listening to this show, because at that point, you know, we're just not even close to being on the same page of, of mm-hmm. music. So
2: And the fact is that those people that you're willing to shun for not getting a vaccination are the same people that you are going to be more than happy to see when you need them.
0: So, well, Kate, thank you for coming on. Thank you for writing us that uh, email. We really appreciate it. It was, it was just, it spoke to us, especially in light of what's going on with some friends of ours and, and with some of these other departments that we, we know people are on. I, I am lucky beyond all recognition that I am retired and I don't have to deal with this crap. Uh, let
1: me tell you, uh, it's, it's so weird out there right now um, with what's going on. I mean, I could probably, I could say a lot of, lot of things on this subject and topic now but i, I i'm gonna i'm gonna not for the sake of <laughs> <Yeah>. my safety <laughs> and, and the safety and, of others <laughs> yeah and you know what it's crazy it's weird and they're willing to let um thousands and thousands of firefighters officers um just to sign them home in, in hopes of peer pressuring them into forcing a vaccine on top of
0: them and then saying okay you guys
1: can come back um it, it's it's crazy. And the mandate's really going to get
0: struck down. It's going to get struck down. Mm-hmm. The, it's just the question is, are they going to make you comply with it before it gets struck down? So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, on mm-hmm. that happy note, I wanted yeah. to thank Kate for coming on, uh, and I uh, wanted to tell everybody until our next episode, come home with your shield or on it.